Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I am in the very nice offices of the University of Western Australia Publishing House. What is the right name actually that I should use? Uh, our, our new name is UWA Publishing. UWA Publishing. It used to be yes. University for of Western Australia Press, I yes, guess. Yes, that's right. So for 75 years it was UWA Press right. or the University of Western Australia Press. We're celebrating our 80th birthday this year. Exciting. And my host today is Terry Ann White, who's somebody I've actually known but not seen often for 30 years, I realise. And she is, are you the executive director? Is that I'm, the title? I'm the director and publisher. Director and publisher of UWA Publishing. Yes. So maybe Terry Ann, the first thing you could do is tell us about that shift after 80 years hmm. suddenly to change the name. Okay, we, well, we changed the name five years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we. Uh, it took quite a bit of everything in universities, for those of, for those of you who, who work in them, know that change is very slow. Uh, we wanted to um, refresh our brand and that included our name. Mm-hmm. Our brand had, had the university's crest on it and um, UWA Press as a name meant these days that we had... Uh, many, many phone calls every week from students wanting to work out where to have their um, their work printed rather than published. So press is a complicated... Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, because we, we also have a print house on campus and they were misreading uh, where to go to have their theses printed. And so it just felt like a really good moment to... Um, to change the name, change the brand, and the brand is very dynamic now. Um, mm-hmm. Looks very different to a university crest, uh, and to just think about ourselves as um, a small independent publisher mm. based in Perth, Western Australia, uh, that made really interesting books and was involved and kind of owned by a university. Mm -hmm. But to have it sort of in that order, that it was Mm. dynamic, small, independent, regional, but also, you know, um, owned by um, a great big bureaucracy. Right, right, right. And you're also a professor here at at the university. Yeah, but that's that's just from the system of uh, promotion rather than, you know, I'm an honorary fellow in the Faculty of Arts, right, right. but I don't have any kind of professorial role. Oh, so you can d- devote your whole time to yeah, the publishing that's venture. Right. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. So would it be okay if you gave us a little history of the press as it was mm. and how it's been transformed? Because apart from anything else, I imagine technology has been a big factor and shrinking budgets for subvention yeah. of university-style publishing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Look, Interesting that the 1935 start of uh, of the press was about um, making textbooks uh, and servicing the university community of students. I'd, I'd suggest that most of the the early books were not research monographs; they were much more about uh, materials for students. So, in, in other words, that, would that include? You know, lecture notes, 
and maybe readings as well? In other words, were they dodgy in copyright? <laughs> oh, quite possibly. Yeah, quite uh-huh. probably. Uh, but, you know, it was about the, uh, the access to and supply of, um, of materials from the UK um, and just thinking about, you know, getting a piece of that action. Got it, right. Um, and replicating. Um, and then it moved into uh, a series, you know, there was a very big focus from from the early days of, let's say, the 40s through to the 70s of Western Australian history, uh, Western Australian natural history, particularly uh, botany, mm-hmm. and, um, and politics. Mm-hmm and political uh, uh, policy and accounts and research papers and that kind of thing. In the 70s, the, there was something of a move into, uh, uh, how would we put it, you know, more palatable, general mm-hmm. um, readership uh, books. and. And then th- there's this kind of moment of explosion in Western Australia uh, in preparation for the 1979... Um, uh, uh, what is it? Sesquicentenary? Sesqui- was it? No. The 150 years. 150. Yeah, yeah. So sesquicentenary. Yeah. Uh, where the, the government of the day gave a huge amount of money and a huge amount of money to UWAP uh, but also dispersed it around the community as well for books about the history of Western Australia. So a whole kind of biographical um, encyclopedias were mm. produced. The um, can I just grab sure a list a listing of the books that came out in 19, 1979. I think there were. Um, you know, they, I'd suggest, uh, nearly tripled their output because they had money for Western Australian sesquicentenary poetry and prose, history, biography, um, agriculture, all of these, you know, and mm. um, commerce and industry and geology and social history, it was an extraordinary um, explosion of printed material from Western Australia that mostly came out of uh, UWAP but not exclusively. And um, I think that that really established, I'm sure it it was a great loss maker as well um, for both government and for the press, but it was this huge... um, uh, additional set of mm. documents and and books about Western Australia. And Terry, and for, that's the first time you've mentioned poetry and prose. So, was this the beginning of fictional material? No, it wasn't. It was um, uh, entirely uh, two anthologies. So, up up until the year two thousand and five, uh, UWAP had only published, I think, around about five or six books of um, selected uh, poetry or selected prose, uh-huh. only anthologies uh, of multiple authors. 
So 2005, we have to wait until hmm. the uh, the beginning of um, uh, novels and short stories. Right. And then right. 2008 for poetry. Wow, great. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back. I've, I've pushed us ahead by mistake in a way. Yeah. So 1979, there's this sudden subvention. All this money yep. comes in. And it's very much focused on WA, understandably. Yes. And does that then generate further tendencies in the 80s and 90s? Yes, it does. Uh, so, in, in the, for instance, in, um, in... Oh, yes, it's huge. It's, it's a really huge kind of push mm. of mm. That, that movement from, um, from more scholarly, you know, more uh, uh, specialist interest mm. mm -hmm. into these more general interest, mm -hmm. um, mm. you know, indexes of and, and encyclopedias of and, uh, and all of that sort of material. And it then kind of um, trips over into monographs and, mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. research documents. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 1980s as well, uh, what we get is this funny little aberration that lasted for about eight or nine years of uh, children's picture books. Hmm. And it was simply that, the, um, that one of the staff had a background in children's picture books. And so quite a number of children's picture books were published um, and released to, you know, reasonable success over, over that period. And then a kind of ill-formed um, Ill idea of something called junior fiction which was to replicate what was happening in young adult fiction. I was going to say, is that like young adult? Yeah, it's mm. like young adult, but it's daggy. <laughs> you know, who in their right mind between the age of sort of nine and 15 would want to read something called junior, junior fiction? Junior fiction. Mm. Certainly not me. <laughs> um, and so I was the, uh, I was the cruel uh, uh, person who um, abandoned all of our children's uh, publishing in the year 2008. Is that when you arrived? No, I arrived in 2006. 2006. So uh, prior to arriving, and yeah. we are jumping around a bit here, yep. but that's okay. Prior to arriving in 2006 as the director, I had um, I was the um, the commissioning editor for that brand new introduction of the fiction. So I was the series editor mm -hmm. um, in 2005 of the new writing series. Um, and I'd been on the board prior to that and so then stepped into the role mm. in 2006 and made, you know, in I think I said 2008, but in 2007 was the kind of end of the children's book. It's a brutal act. Very brutal. And, yeah, I was probably not the most popular person in certain circles in Perth, but we weren't doing, um, we didn't have the kind of expertise in-house to be able to manage that. I didn't necessarily think it was a, a good um, match with a university. I was much more interested in, in spending the time going out and encouraging and supporting and nurturing um, uh, academics, people who 
uh, research and write, to mm. write books that um, that people in the general audience, you know, general market might be interested in. Mm. And mm. in part that was because for 11 years um, at UWA I ran a, a cross-disciplinary research centre called the Institute of Advanced Studies. And we had a, we had a, a kind of remarkable uh, public program uh, where we we had a stack of um, probably 60 to 70 um, visitors every year from all around the world who were either um, remarkable um, scholars, researchers, public intellectuals, artists, mm -hmm. activists, and we ran um, uh, public lectures and they're all free for the for the um, pop, you know, for the communities of Perth, and people came, and it was just an eye opener for me mm. about how um, locked up knowledge is in universities, and how little people are prepared to share with um, external um, uh, community members, mm. and how. Uh, yeah, how how much resistance there there was to that until they started to realise that you know it's not it's not such a bad thing to do this knowledge transfer and to mm -hmm. to get um, attention from. I mean, one way to a, an academic's heart is always having an having a story in a newspaper or on <laughs> radio or even on television, and so that's the kind of incentive to have people. Um, open themselves up a little bit and stop thinking about just their 20 best colleagues and 20 best enemies when they're mm. writing a book. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so far we've had, I think, about five um, UWA academics who have written books that they wouldn't have necessarily written without that encouragement that have gone out to much wider, um, a much wider readership. That's interesting. What sorts of topics? Okay, one of them is by um, a medical researcher who is a complete hotshot um, professor of paediatrics and, alle and an allergist as well, who travels the world non-stop giving keynote addresses. Mm. But when she's at home, runs a clinic for children with allergies. And so this is a book um, about called The Allergy Epidemic, A Mystery of the Modern World. Wow, what a great title. And it's, so it's for people who mm. are interested in yeah. popular science, mm -hmm. people who are parents of children with allergies um, and people with allergies themselves. Mm. And so it has, it has science in it, it has some tough spots, but what we do, or what she does, uh, her name is Susan Prescott, she um, she gives slight warnings. She says, "Okay, this is a kind of serious talk about genetics, and I can give you the the short story, and here's the long story, and mm -hmm. take your pick." Um, and that's done incredibly well. And I've now we've now published another book of hers about um, the origins of of health outcomes. Wow. that has gone around the world and, you know, it's done extremely well and every time people hear her speak, whether it's a specialist audience or a general audience, um, I'm there selling the books and, you know, with a cue. 
of people wanting to, to buy it because she's a great communicator. And prior to these books, she'd been a great communicator to her, her community mm -hmm. in journals. So I think that, that, that stuff's really powerful. Sure. That's a wonderful example. It is. So this yeah. is interesting. Part of this then derives from the heritage of the press, but part of it derives from your own involvement in the Institute. I and think so. And a decade being, of yes. setting people yeah. together, putting yeah. people together yeah. who otherwise might not connect. Yeah, and, and as well as bringing in a larger general, reader, uh, a general community, mm. it was about it be always being cross-disciplinary. So mm. we ran things with big, broad-based topics mm -hmm. to, to deal with the problems of now. So, mm. you know, gender and culture, mm. gender and... Uh, sorry, gender and culture, um, genomics, uh, mm. nanotechnology, mm -hmm. um, stuff about human rights, but not just having the, the kind of usual suspects, mm -hmm. bringing mm -hmm. people in with the nano, nanotechnology um, program, for instance. You know, mm. we have a long time, long lead-up time to work on this, and we put, you know, chemists and engineers and bio people and um, ethicists in the same room mm. and they have to listen to each other. And there was a great deal of resistance from, from the nanotechnologists, you know, that broad range of people dealing mm. with, with a relatively new field, um, until they sat through it. And this um, very distinguished... Um, chemist from Oxford, at the end of the three days, he said, I've never heard any of that stuff before because I only ever go to my own streams, mm, you know? Mm, mm. And so this was in enormously powerful. Mm, mm. And, you know, the way that we've got to go and the way that universities are, you know, got stuck for a... Most, many universities got stuck mm. for a long time, um, you know, in their own disciplinary... Um, you know, silos. So this was, yeah, this was enormously um, uh, thrilling mm. as well as uh, productive mm. to, to bring people into a room and try and work out how to get them to be able to communicate and share um, the, the knowledge that they had um, they'd worked on from their own disciplinary mm. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, focus. And if I can go back a little earlier in your career, you've been involved in <coughs> public intellectual activities way before even the Institute for Advanced Studies. Yeah. Would you mind just telling us a little bit, on a selective basis, that you're oh, happy yes, with it, make, you. it makes you look really great? <laughs> well, well <laughs> <About> at the end... <laughs> you know? Because it goes back much longer than that and in all kinds of different sure. areas. Sure. And I think there's an interesting trajectory there for people to hear about mm. that you've already partially drawn yep. publishing the Institute, but it's yep. okay. deeper all than right. that. Well, um, I did a um, communications and cultural studies uh, degree at Waite, which is now Curtin University. What was then Western uh, Australian Institute of Technology and a very, very good program they had too. Program. Uh, so that was in the mid-70s, from 76 on. Uh, I took a year off to become a rock and roll entrepreneur. So I put on some big uh, gigs uh, in big ballrooms. 
uh, and managed a couple of bands and then went back to study um, after a year and uh, I was just really interested in, in how things are organised and how things work and always interested in what other people were thinking about. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've been on probably most of the boards of... Um, Art, of arts organisations in WA. Terry is one of what they call what we call in Britain the great and the good. The great and the good. <laughs> so then, when I when I uh, graduated in uh, from from Wait at the age of twenty three, you know, it took me a little bit of time to get through because it, I was having so much fun and there wasn't a three three year um, deadline on undergraduate degrees back then. I decided to open a bookshop. And so I opened a bookshop at 23. I worked um, between three and five nights a week in a restaurant to keep it going. Um, but it continued for 14 years under my ownership. And then I sold it and it continued for 21 years before the, the business went broke and was, the shop was empty for five years. And then miraculously um, uh, reopened as a bookshop um, and has only just moved out of that, um, those premises uh, literally two weeks ago to move just down the street a little bit to a larger space. So as a bookshop owner, as a, as a young woman, um, I was interested in the ancillary things that could happen in a space of ideas. It was a bookshop that was only stocked with things that I thought were um, fabulous, you know. And I was I, a customer of this bookshop, <laughs> I should say. I, I was only interested in, <clears throat> you know, the literature and literary theory and politics and feminism and gay and lesbian studies and, and art and film and photography and it, we didn't have any mass market books or any books about sport or um, any travel guides. Cookery books? No. No. So I, when, uh, I, I was uh, for a while on the board of the University of California Press editorial committee and the thing that kept us afloat <coughs> apart from some liens from the university was you know, wine country of California, and occasionally spiders of the world, okay. <laughs> or maps of California. That's right. Well, I need to just step in there yeah. and yeah. and say that in my role here at UWAP, our best-selling books and the things that have done precisely mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that work have been books about food and wine, mm -hmm. and um, are about big Western Australian stories about mm. great entrepreneurs in kitchens and in, 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 um, uh, in wineries. And our best-selling book of our 80 years is a book about pizza uh, written by a man with a Greek name. So there. And the, and the great name? Oh, his name is Theo Caligarakis. 
Yeah, and it's a book called Theo and Co. In Search of the Perfect Pizza. See, this is one of the many points of contiguity between California and WA. That's right. (laughs) Play to your strengths. So after you sold the bookstore, and the name of the bookstore, you should say... Was Arcane. Arcane. The Arcane Wonderful store. Where did you go? Uh, So this is about about 1995 or something? Yeah, I sold the bookshop in 1994. I'd been working in... um, uh, in, in, involved in the Perth Writers Festival, in a whole and in in presenting street festivals, art festivals, and just kind of following um, things that I, that turned me on. Mm, mm. Uh, so when I got to UWA, I, I got the job in 1996 at UWA in the English department, teaching literature and writing. And I was there for three years and then given this magnificent opportunity of founding a, a brand new um, research institute. Mm. And the reason that I was tapped on the shoulder about that was because I'd had a life outside of the academy. Mm. Mm. That, I, that people knew that I'd done, done things through from great idea through to completed um, uh, entity. Now, through all of this, you're not, you haven't mentioned so far your own writing and editing, yeah. which you've done as well. Yes, but there's not a lot of time for, for that right now. So um, I f- still would consider myself to be um, a writer of fiction and non-fiction, but um, I think that there's a kind of ethical issue about being a, being a publisher and trying to write... Um, anything that's that's sort of book length, um, because I'm I'm instantly in competition with the people that I'm I'm steering through, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're first time authors or fourth time. Mm-hmm. So that just feels like something on the back burner. Oh, that's while I'm in this job. But for those who are interested, could you mention a couple of the projects you've been involved in in the past that they might look for? Sure. Well, um... Everything's an advertisement, remember. <laughs> I, I, I published a book of stories or fragments about the experience of uh, living in the, in the place that I lived in. I mean, I, I grew up with this terrible chip on my shoulder about um, uh, not having ever read um, works of imagination that named the place that I came from, and it felt oh. like a um, it felt like a slight, <laughs> mm. uh, because you know there are some tremendous things worth uh, recording with name, mm-hmm. um, naming them uh, in in Perth, and you know it continues to be a problem, Toby that. Um, a friend of mine who's recently published a, a novel that has been highly successful and highly kind of awarded, um, the agents in the UK trying to sell it to the US and to the UK had this problem of, you know, well, it's set in Perth. Who wants to know about um, uh, a home for polio-suffering children in the 1950s in a place called Perth. Mm, well, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, 
you know, mm. surely it's the it's the it's the quality of the telling rather than the location. And so that really shocked me. I thought we'd, yeah. we were over that, and I thought you know that possibly Tim Winton. I was going to say that's yeah. one of the names that comes to mind. He doesn't ever really um, pin it down with names, and I'm I'm not fixated about naming everything. Mm. But um, you know that is a very particular um, uh, worldview, mm. and you know it works for some, not for others. But it doesn't. It'd be hard, I think. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's hard to. It's easy to pin it down at the level of the beach and mm. the, um, co- you know, the coast. But um, I'm kind of interested in the inner city mm. and mm. and the remarkable um, inner city suburb that I lived in. So that that's a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> I published a book of um, fragments uh, called Night and Day in 1992, and I published a n- novel about trying to work out how I had these deep roots to this place um, in 2001 called Finding Theodore and Brina. And it was about um, the, the, the sort of place that Perth is where um, there is a constant um, kind of dismissing and, and relegating to the, to ga- to the garbage um, uh, things that are... 30 to 50 years old. You can see it in our city where most buildings are pulled down after after about 40 or 50 years. They have they have that sort of time mm. span um, unless they are um, marked out as special. Mm-hmm. And even the special ones have, been, have gone um, in many cases. But, um, you know, this is... This is uh, contrary to what I said about what happened in 1979, but that was this kind of big movement of trying to reclaim some of what had been overlooked. Mm. But my my great-great-great-grandparents came here in the um, 1850s, one as a Polish-Jewish convict through the London um, penal system and the other one as a young uh, London-Jewish girl um, mm-hmm. Coming to a better, uh, a better future, mm. on a boat full of uh, women who were either domestics, prostitutes, wives, potential wives, and I was kind of concerned that I grew up with my very straight name, surname White, um, and there was this kind of remarkable story about about. Uh, Jewish grandparents mm. who um, uh, had nine children, but there's no kind of there's absolutely no trace of anything Jewish in the family. You know, the, they did the, the, their their nine children um, just kind of wiped out the Jewish part of the family in one generation because none of them had the opportunity to to um, Continue. Um, you know, none of them could marry Jews because there weren't any Jew. There were so few Jews here, and mm. they were of the wrong class. They mm-hmm. were um, sons of sons and daughters of convict. A uh, convict. 
who um, also kind of uh, um, echoed what was going on in the early colony that had taken convicts very late uh, because it was failing and they needed um, cheap labour. And, uh, and Theodore Krakow um, worked on building the Fremantle prison, this beautiful limestone palace and the Fremantle lunatic asylum, likewise a very um, impressive building, and then ended up in both of them. <clears throat> and died of uh, tertiary syphilis with the voice of the God Almighty in his belly telling him to destroy the world. And so I read all of this in, on microfiche in the state library and none of this was kind of... Um, nobody in my family knew anything about... You know, they kind of wiped out the whole um, beginning of the Krakow family in... in uh, Western Australia, yeah. uh, within a, a generation, maybe two, was all gone. And all that's really left is uh, the, the heritage of remarkable uh, um, Aboriginal Australian rules footballers who have that name, you know, people dispossessed of their land carrying the name Krakow of Krakow, um, you know, where where my Jewish forebears, um, you know, those who remained in Krakow or in Berlin, um, you know, lost lost their land and were dis mm. were dispossessed over and again, and that just seems like a remarkable thing. Yes, absolutely. Have, um, the the name is pronounced Kracker. But it's exactly... It's just Jimmy know, and Phil. Jimmy and Phil. Cracker. Yeah. The Cracker Brothers, I remember yeah. them. Yeah. Yes. <coughs> wow, that is an extraordinary story. Thank you for sharing it. I That's haven't read right. the book. But I'm, I'll boy, give you a copy. I guarantee there'll be some people keen to read it after <laughs> yeah. hearing that story. Very moving. And I imagine novelising that was quite amazing. But I can just picture... I was trying to picture you in front of the microfiche learning this about mm. Theodore's mm. ultimate fate, in a certain mm. sense, mm. and how emotional that must have been. Yeah. That, that part of it was emotional. But what was even more um, uh, poignant was finding the letters that uh, Brina Israel, his mm. wife, or he, they weren't um, officially married, but they had nine children, so I... They did some of the things that married people once or twice in their lives have done. That's right. <laughs> but Brina, uh, when he's in the lunatic asylum, mm. um, writes to the colonial sec secretary, you know, the most powerful person in the, in the colony, uh, in these remarkable imploring letters saying, mm. I, I cannot, I will not take my children to the poorhouse again. You making me pay his keep in the lunatic asylum when he did, you know, his service here as a convict and was a ticket of leave man is deeply unfair. You know, I have a, I have a large and helpless family and only my oldest son to keep us together. And so to find that when, you know, quite often, I don't know what it's like for you, but I had no idea 
mm. whether these people were literate or mm. and you know there's nothing handed down in the family and uh, because she writes to him imploring um, him if he won't let her off the hook from for paying for the the keep of a man who'd done his service um, and done much more, I expect, send him back to his family in, in Berlin. They can look after it because uh, this is too hard for a mother of nine. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So that was kind of remarkable. Startling. And, of course, as you say, the discovery of her literacy, <coughs> quite a thing. Yeah. yeah. And her... Uh, and, and eloquence as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> not only literacy, but eloquence. Uh, of course, in those days, it's not as though you could be eloquent by constant editing in the easy way that eloquence can That's allegedly right. yeah. be constructed or flow right. today. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. So to see her hand and mm. then to find that she lived around the corner from, from me later in her life. She died at, I think, 69, but in her 40s, she went to Adelaide with a man and they came back married. So by her 40s, she, you know, all of those nine children were gone. Um, and she was, you know, into the second stage of, of her life. Wow. Around the corner from where I live. <laughs> and where was that? Where, in Northbridge. She lived in, uh, in Fitzgerald Street. And um, this is just over the the bridge, I suppose, from the central business That's district right. of Perth, and it's a traditional cultural area, alternative area. And an area of, of migration. So in the first instance, the Chinese, and then the Greeks, and the Italians, and they've kind of determined the, um, the, com the complexion of, mm. of that, that area of Perth. And it, it's still a wonderful area, actually. <laughs> Uh, now it has this arts precinct with these massive buildings that are quite strange in terms of getting between one and another and never knowing whether you're on the first floor, the fifth floor or the basement floor. But it is a very striking area still. It has been since I first went there 30 years ago. OK, well, back to publishing in the last few minutes, if we could. I'd love to get your take on where publishing is and where it's heading because... Your example about the, or your explanation for the name change is fascinating when you said it's in part to do with the number of phone calls received each week from students wanting to print physically their theses. We're told it's the end of print. We're told that people don't read books. We're told that both technology and attention span have changed in such a way that there is no future for conventional publishing. And we've seen lots of university presses in lots of places closed down. Now, I know you're no longer a university press, but you yes, have some are. of those qualities. Or yes, you're, we are. But yes, you're that are. and. That, that plus. and, yes, yes. So, given my okay. amateurish adumbration of the situation, the, the prevailing political economy, as it were, what's your take? What, do you, what is really happening for those of you actually actively involved? Okay. Well, um, this year we've published 32 books. Wow, and it's October. <laughs> 2015. Yeah. Um, we, the whole, globally, the, the publishing industry um, had a, an incredible hit in 2011 and 2012 and a bit of 2013, where I think people became really confused about 
you know, there was there was a um, a downturn in in retail markets. You'd imagine that people continued to um, to buy books, but um, how they bought them meant that uh, many bookshops, much loved by by their customers, um, went out of business. But as well, many big book barns, you know, and and book supermarkets also went out of business. And so I think there's just been a realignment of the um, the retail market, but also many more people now buy print books online, and we sell our books online. Uh, we have our own shop, which means that we're not beholden to to our national distributor in Australia or in the US to be the only the, you know the sole mm -hmm. um, stream of of sales. Uh, that also means that our um, our markup, or you know, our our um, part of the the returns of every sale are better because we don't we cut out both the both of the middle people, mm. the distributor and the bookseller, which is worth about sixty seven and a half percent of the retail price. So when we sell our books online, we sell them um, with free postage, and that's an incentive, and it means that you don't have to go to five bookshops hoping to find the book that you heard about mm -hmm. on the radio or read the review of. Um, you just go straight there and you usually get it the next day or the day after. Um, I just think that there's um, a lot of people have pulled their heads in, and we're still publishing far too much in our in our societies, you know, across the range of different, you know, of general mass market, trade, um, literary, scholarly, this and that. Mm. We still publish far too many books. <laughs> and there is just this um, bloodlust from people who possibly have slightly more leisure time or just have this desire to become authors. You know, I, I said lots of, lots of phone calls from students, mm -hmm. but, but I get about 10 manuscripts a week, even though we say on our website that we're not taking unsolicited manuscripts. So that's a lot every year. Mm. And of that 500 or so, um, if I took one of them, one or two of them, through to publication, it's a pretty good result. Right. <clears throat> so yeah. there are many, many people wishing to either emulate the, well, in a celebrity culture, mm. people mm. people just think about what an author is as being, you know, kind of getting out of the, the tedium of the lives that they're in, the jobs that they're in, and, you know, going to writers' festivals or being on the telly. <laughs> that's a very brutal and kind of, you know, um, uh, reduced way of talking about it. But I think there, 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 there's truth in there. So in terms of being able to select what you publish, yeah. do you deal with agents? Yes, but the agent, the whole world of agents is also reducing. Uh, tell us about that. Well, simply, uh, well, let's talk about Australia. There were never mm. enough book agents available to be able to service good professional authors mm. because it, you know, I don't know, maybe it dropped off 
sometime mid mid century. Not really sure. Taken over by by you know conglomerate um, agencies who had Australia as part of their territory. But these days, you know, if you if you're thinking about them taking ten percent of a cut of a very reduced, um, in, you know, the, mm. the, the the whole industry has improved, but it hasn't improved to the levels that that it was once at. So I have friends who, in the eighties, published books that you know they could easily sell forty to fifty thousand copies of, and in twenty. Uh, 13, 14, um, they, they're, they're selling, you know, if they, if they sell 10,000 copies, it's, uh, it's a success. Now, is this to do with the overproduction problem or is this to do with something it's, connected to agents? No, 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 it's, sorry, it's not about, a, well, it's about agents just follow on behind all of that. Right, right. It's right. just about, mm. um, there's just so much out there. Mm. So there's mm. a, um, one, one of the problems, and so this is just going back to the celebrity mm. culture mm. issue, that many people invest their money in, in the series concept. So we're talking about general, general um, um, uh, markets. Mm. Mm. And if you're trying to keep up with Game of Thrones plus mm. another series plus another, you've probably got enough reading to do for the whole year Right. Plus, you've spent your dough. And I know that in the young adult world, where I've done a few <coughs> podcasts with authors via agents, yep. they're signed up to do trilogies if they're signed up to do one at all, yeah. because there's this idea of committing readers yeah. Yeah. to an ongoing narrative, isn't there? There is. And I th look, I think there is also you know, quite a lot of people who were quite well established. So my, my example from the 70s and 80s, yeah. uh, 80s and 90s of people who could sell, let's say, 40,000 copies. Yeah. Literary work. Yeah. By the time we get to 2013, 14, mm. um, there's a different kind of reading culture as mm. well. I think a lot of those people who are doing the literary reading have maybe broadened out their, their, um, their field of interest. And what about print... And digital? Well, I think for small um, independent publishers like us, uh, they're, print still rules. Digital mm -hmm. hasn't, you know, we, we, we have to go to the expense of producing um, e-books, but they don't, they don't have the same sort of return. Mm -hmm. Um, they certainly do when we're talking about the big multinational companies and mm. those blockbuster books and the celebrity cult, um, celebrity mm. um, authors. There's a huge amount of that goes through, and you can see um, that that those publishers, you know, are getting a very good return. But for the small, quite specialist, even though we do trade work. Uh, publishers, I just don't think. I think people still like the artifact mm. of the book, mm. with mm. the design cover and with the opportunity to close it and reopen it. You know, and that it, and a lot of people like us, you know, look at a screen and are hypnotised by a screen or 
all day. And it's quite nice to go back to uh, an artefact. The physical object. Yeah. Well, to finish up, Terry Ann, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what's sort of hot and exciting and interesting yeah. that's coming out or <coughs> is recently out from well, the house. That just re- reminds me of the thing that I wanted to say, yeah. which was at the beginning of last year, we, um, you know, we've continued to publish books that that might be considered, you know, at a scholarly or a fairly specialist mm-hmm. um, um, end of the market. But we realised that, um, I guess over the last 15 years or so, there's been such a contraction of opportunity for um, Australian academics, particularly in humanities and social sciences, to publish within Australia. You know, we, there are only four university publishers left. Um, and not all of us do very much in, the, in that, that mm. area. You know, the Melbourne University Press does very, very little. It's mostly trade-focused. Um, and UQP and UNSW... So University do, of Queensland and University of New South Wales, respectively. Um, ...do a bit. Uh, but they also have a very strong trade... Um, um, profile. So we decided to uh, to introduce um, a, a, a series called UWAP Scholarly, where we would um, uh, these they're sitting over there. You can see those coloured books. Oh, these ones here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's just some of them. Uh, we've so now I'm seeing done after homosexual, the legacies of gay liberation. Vulnerability and Exposure, Footballer Scandals, To the Beach, Your Favourite Place, <laughs> The Practice of Value, Essays on Literature and Cultural Studies, Different White People, Radical Activism for Aboriginal Rights. And there's a... So, yeah. yeah. And you've got some notable <coughs> um, people in there. Yep. John Froe, who used yep. to be at Murdoch University here. Yep. Is that the Deborah Wilson mm, I used no, to know? I don't think Different? so. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so we we decided that it was uh, it was important to bring things back um, to be able to to work out a model whereby a subvention came in mm. to be able to help to pay some of the production costs. Yes, but the books would be properly and professionally edited, as with all of our other books. They'd look good, but we'd and they have do a, look good. yeah we'd have a. Um, a templated cover, you know, mm, they'd be yep. in a series, and that hopefully that series could build. Mm. And it would mean that, and most important thing, mm. that we'd have them at a price of 40 Australian dollars mm-hmm. retail price. Most of the scholarly books that come in from, from, um, from Europe and the US mm. come in with a, with a uh, price of about 120 um, Australian dollars and so they're therefore you can tell that they've been made in such a small print run and for really a library audience rather than a mm. um, individual mm. um, buyer audience so these books can travel just a little bit further across Australia and then go back to other other places mm. we do them print on demand and this whole technology change is something I haven't spoken about that makes a very big difference to uh, that we don't have to commit to, to printing a thousand copies at a time. We can just 
you know, suck it and see with 50 or 100 and then just mm -hmm. keep... And you're not stuck printing. with inventory that's, that's taking right. up space. Yep. So this, this series was about keeping um, Australian research that's usually paid for by the taxpayer mm. in large part um, and produced out of universities that are mm -hmm. taxpayer funded in large part uh, within this society, within this set of mm. communities mm. Uh, and affordable so that they don't just end up in... in um, in libraries. And I notice, for at least that's that small sample flicking through, these are public interest topics. They're not completely esoteric. That's right. Even though they're also clearly scholarly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, the beach, cultural value, Aboriginal issues and activism, yeah. public interest yeah. topics. And so the next three that we have coming out, one by Paul Carter mm -hmm. um, about placemaking and the choreotopography of, uh, of public space um, and design, you know, design mm, it right mm. at the forefront and centre. And Ross Gibson, two volumes from him of selected essays uh, uh, about, you know, the kind of wide range of, of uh, topics that turn him on, you know, in art, film, um, you know, cultural... Policy, cultural studies. Um, there is very little he is not interested in, yeah. as I recall. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we've got, you know, we've got some great authors already on on that list, and it feels like it's a package deal. You know that that it's a it's a series that just keeps kind of building, and we can we can do it, you know, affordably. We're selling. We're certainly selling more copies uh, of those books per title than some of these, you know, importing importing a hundred copies mm. and selling them for a hundred and twenty dollars mm -hmm. um, deals. Nice. So print on demand makes that possible yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You you know, five years ago print on demand wouldn't have looked as 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 good as that and we are all of our paper book paperback books are, are produced print on demand. They're uploaded into Melbourne, um, the Melbourne company, which is a global company, and so they are then um, lodged very easily in Brazil, in the UK, in China, mm. in Germany and in the US, and somebody can go to Amazon, find the book, and it's out in there you know it doesn't have to be nothing has to be freighted from Australia nice nice so it's revolutionary yeah that's yeah. really something I mean it's a shame about yeah. Amazon but they're there to provide a service and in terms of the books that aren't the print-on-demand that aren't these scholarly ones <coughs> uh, I'm sure you've got some hardbacks that are very beautiful and yes. striking that maybe yes. you might mention that well we've, we've done a series maybe of interested in tremendous books about um, about um, visual arts mm -hmm. um, and we've revived a couple of very important West Australian artists who have been completely overlooked um, uh, and are now both dead but we've and one is Guy Gray Smith who mm -hmm. is a very fine landscape um, artist 
The other was Elise Blumen, who was a mm -hmm. um, Viennese emigre, um, who made, again, mostly portraits and landscapes. So we've published them in the last three years, and a series of fabulous books about um, contemporary Aboriginal artists. Um, a book by a book about Timothy Cook, who is a Tiwi artist of great renown um, that we published a couple of months ago. Um, just a sensational um, book about his um, his encounter with, or the way that he uses tradition in entirely modern um, forms. Oh, how exciting. It is very exciting. And he's both a traditional man and a, and a very modern man. Can you explain, by the way, because most <coughs> listeners are outside Australia, when, yeah. when one's talking about Indigenous folks, you say traditional and modern, and that's got yeah. a very specific meaning okay. in Australia, doesn't it? For well, Aboriginal it does. People. Yeah, well, the, in the Tiwi um, uh, cosmology, there is a lot of attention to the moon and how it it operates in in um, in uh, everyday life. It, well, ev absolutely everyday life, but but also the you know the the importance of it in um, initiation into yes, into be becoming a man in this yep. case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he you know he uses the um, the um, kulama and there are a whole range of different concepts that he uses, um, but he the striking way that he that he represents them in his mm. very large um, uh, canvases is it's both breathtaking and also deeply unique. Mm. Um, That's exciting. It is. And so people can find some of these books by going, I guess, to your website yes. and information about they them. Can, they can get quite a lot of information about all of our books, including excerpts or, you know, uh, uh, downloadable, um, you know, sections. Free cool stuff. Oh, okay. Free cool stuff. <laughs> Good. And what's the address? It's just uwap.com.au. Great. Well, Terry ann White, thank you so much for coming into the pod today. It's been oh, really great. My pleasure. And I guess I'd love to do this again sometime sure. and learn about more of your adventures. It was great okay. to go back over some of your past, bits of which I knew, most of yeah. which I didn't, and great to learn about what you're doing now. Terrific. Thank you, Toby.